0: Chapter five of the Nigger of the Narcissus This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter five. Part one. A heavy atmosphere of oppressive quietude pervaded the ship. In the afternoon men went about washing clothes and hanging them out to dry in the unprosperous breeze with the meditative languor of disenchanted philosophers very little was said the problem of life seemed too voluminous for the narrow limits of human speech and by common consent it was abandoned to the great sea that had from the beginning enfolded it in its immense grip to the sea that knew all and would in time infallibly unveil to each the wisdom hidden in all the errors the certitude that lurks in doubts, the realm of safety and peace beyond the frontiers of sorrow and fear. And in the confused current of impotent thoughts that set unceasingly this way and that through bodies of men, Jimmy bobbed up upon the surface, compelling attention like a black buoy chained to the bottom of a muddy stream. Falsehood triumphed. It triumphed through doubt, through stupidity, through pity through sentimentalism. We set ourselves to bolster it up from compassion, from recklessness, from a sense of fun. Jimmy's steadfastness to his untruthful attitude in the face of the inevitable truth had the proportions of a colossal enigma, of a manifestation grand and incomprehensible that at times inspired a wondering awe. And there was also, to many, something exquisitely droll in fooling him thus to the top of his bent the latent egoism of tenderness to suffering appeared in the developing anxiety not to see him die his obstinate non-recognition of the only certitude whose approach we could watch from day to day was as disquieting as the failure of some law of nature he was so utterly wrong about himself that one could not but suspect him of having access to some source of supernatural knowledge he was absurd to the point of inspiration he was unique and as fascinating as only something inhuman could be he seemed to shout his denials already from beyond the awful border he was becoming immaterial like an apparition his cheekbones rose the forehead slanted more the face was all hollows patches of shade and the fleshless head resembled a disinterred black skull fitted with two restless globes of silver in the sockets of eyes he was demoralizing through him we were becoming highly humanized tender complex excessively decadent we understood the subtlety of his fear sympathized with all his revulsions shrinkings, evasions, delusions, as though we had been over-civilized and rotten, and without any knowledge of the meaning of life. We had the air of being initiated in some infamous mysteries. We had the profound grimaces of conspirators, exchanged meaning glances, significant short words. We were inexpressibly vile and very much pleased with ourselves we lied to him with gravity with emotion with unction as if performing some moral trick with a view to an eternal reward we made a chorus of affirmation to his wildest assertions as though he had been a millionaire a politician or a reformer and we a crowd of ambitious lovers when we ventured to question his statements we did it after the manner of obsequious sycophants to the end that his glory should be augmented by the flattery of our descent he influenced the moral tone of our world as though he had it in his power to distribute honours treasure or pain and he could give us nothing but his contempt it was immense it seemed to grow gradually larger as his body day by day shrank a little more while we looked it was the only thing about him of him that gave the impression of durability and vigor. It lived within him with an unquenchable life. It spoke through the eternal pout of his black lips. It looked at us through the impertinent mournfulness of his languid and enormous stare. We watched him intently. He seemed unwilling to move, as if distrustful of his own solidity. The slightest gesture must have disclosed to him. It could not surely be otherwise his bodily weakness and caused a pang of mental suffering he was chary of movements he lay stretched out chin on blanket in a kind of sly cautious immobility only his eyes roamed over faces his eyes disdainful penetrating and sad it was at that time that belfast's devotion and also his pugnacity secured universal respect he spent every moment of his spare time in jimmy's cabin he tended him talked to him was as gentle as a woman as tenderly gay as an old philanthropist as sentimentally careful of his nigger as a model slave owner but outside he was irritable explosive as gunpowder somber suspicious and never more brutal than when most sorrowful with him it was a tear and a blow A tear for Jimmy, a blow for anyone who did not seem to take a scrupulously orthodox view of Jimmy's case. We talked about nothing else. The two Scandinavians, even, discussed the situation, but it was impossible to know in what spirit, because they quarreled in their own language. Belfast suspected one of them of irreverence, and in this incertitude thought that there was no option but to fight them both. They became very much terrified by his truculence, and henceforth lived amongst us, dejected like a pair of mutes. Wamebo never spoke intelligibly, but he was as smileless as an animal, seemed to know much less about it all than the cat, and consequently was safe. Moreover, he had belonged to the chosen band of Jimmy's rescuers, and was above suspicion. Archie was silent generally, but often spent an hour or so talking to jimmy quietly with an air of proprietorship at any time of the day and often through the night some man could be seen sitting on jimmy's box in the evening between six and eight the cabin was crowded and there was an interested group at the door everyone stared at the nigger he basked in the warmth of our interest his eye gleamed ironically and in a weak voice he reproached us with our cowardice he would say if you fellows had stuck out for me i would be now on deck we hung our heads yes but if you think i am going to let them put me in irons just to show you sport well no it ruins my health this lying up it does you don't care we were as abashed as if it had been true his superb impudence carried all before it we would not have dared to revolt we didn't want to really we wanted to keep him alive till home to the end of the voyage singleton as usual held aloft appearing to scorn the insignificant events of an ended life once only he came along and unexpectedly stopped in the doorway he peered at Jimmy in profound silence, as if desirous to add that black image to the crowd of shades that peopled his old memory. We kept very quiet and for a long time, Singleton stood there as though he had come by appointment to call for some one or to see some important event. James Waite lay perfectly still and apparently not aware of the gaze scrutinizing him with a steadiness full of expectation there was a sense of a contest in the air we felt the inward strain of men watching a wrestling bout at last jimmy with perceptible apprehension turned his head on the pillow good evening he said in a conciliating tone "Hm," mm, answered the old seaman grumpily for a moment longer he looked at jimmy with severe fixity then suddenly went away It was a long time before anyone spoke in the little cabin, though we all breathed more freely, as men do after an escape from some dangerous situation. We all knew the old man's ideas about Jimmy, and no one dared to combat them. They were unsettling, they caused pain, and, what was worse, they may have been true for all we knew. Only once did he condescend to explain them fully, but the impression was lasting. He said that Jimmy was the cause of the head-winds. Mortally sick men, he maintained, linger till the first sight of land and then die, and Jimmy knew that the very first land would draw his life from him. It is so in every ship. Didn't we know it? He asked us with austere contempt, what did we know? What would we doubt next? Jimmy's desire, encouraged by us and aided by Wamibos, He was a Finn, wasn't he? Very well. By Wamibo spells, delayed the ship in the open sea. Only loverly fools couldn't see it. Who ever heard of such a run of calms and headwinds? It wasn't natural. We could not deny that it was strange. We felt uneasy. The common saying, more days, more dollars, did not give the usual comfort because the stores were running short. Much had been spoiled off the Cape, and we were on a half allowance of biscuit. Peas, sugar, and tea had been finished long ago. Salt meat was giving out. We had plenty of coffee, but very little water to make it with. We took up another hole in our belts and went on scraping, polishing, painting the ship from morning to night, and soon she looked as though she had come out of a bandbox, but hunger lived on board of her. Not dead starvation, but steady living hunger that stalked about the decks slept in the forecastle, the tormentor of waking moments the disturber of dreams we looked to windward for signs of change every few hours of night and day we put her round with the hope that she would come up on that tack at last she didn't she seemed to have forgotten the way home she rushed to and fro heading northwest heading east she ran backwards and forwards distracted like a timid creature at the foot of a wall sometimes as if tired to death she would wallow languidly for a day in the smooth swell of an unruffled sea all up the swinging masts the sails thrashed furiously through the hot stillness of the calm we were weary hungry thirsty we commenced to believe Singleton, but with unshaken fidelity, dissembled to Jimmy. We spoke to him with jocose alluvishness, like cheerful accomplices in a clever plot. But we looked to the westward over the rail with longing eyes for a sign of hope, for a sign of fair wind, even if its first breath should bring death to our reluctant Jimmy. In vain, the universe conspired with James Waite light airs from the northward sprang up again the sky remained clear and round our weariness the glittering sea touched by the breeze basked voluptuously in the great sunshine as though it had forgotten our life in trouble donkin looked out for a fair wind along with the rest no one knew the venom of his thoughts now he was silent appeared thinner as if consumed slowly by an inward rage at the injustice of man and of fate he was ignored by all and spoke to no one but his hate for every man dwelt in his furtive eyes he talked with the cook only having somehow persuaded the good man that he donkin was a much calumniated and persecuted person together they bewailed the immorality of the ship's company there could be no greater criminals than we who by our lies conspired to send the unprepared soul of a poor ignorant black man to everlasting perdition bodmore cooked what there was to cook remorsefully and felt all the time that by preparing the food of such sinners he imperilled his own salvation as to the captain he had sailed with him for seven years now he said, and would not have believed it possible that such a man, well, well, there it was, can't get out of it, judgment capsized all in a minute, struck in all his pride, more like a sudden visitation than anything else. Duncan perched sullenly on the coal locker, swung his legs, and concurred. He paid in the coin of spurious assent for the privilege to sit in the galley, he was disheartened and scandalized he agreed with the cook could find no words severe enough to criticize our conduct and when in the heat of reprobation he swore at us bodmore who would have liked to swear also if it hadn't been for his principles, pretended not to hear so duncan unrebuked cursed enough for two cadged for matches borrowed tobacco and loafed for hours very much at home before the stove from there he could hear us on the other side of the bulkhead talking to jimmy the cook knocked the saucepans about slammed the oven door muttered prophecies of damnation for all the ship's company and donkin who did not admit of any hereafter except for the purposes of blasphemy listened concentrated and angry, gloating fiercely over a called-up image of infinite torment, as men gloat over the accursed images of cruelty and revenge, of greed and of power. On clear evenings the silent ship, under the cold sheen of the dead moon, took on a false aspect of passionless repose resembling the winter of the earth under her a long band of gold barred the black disk of the sea footsteps echoed on her quiet decks the moonlight clung to her like a frosted mist and the white sails stood out in dazzling cones as of stainless snow in the magnificence of the phantom rays the ship appeared pure like a vision of ideal beauty elusive like a tender dream of serene peace and nothing in her was real nothing was distinct and solid but the heavy shadows that filled her decks with their unceasing and noiseless stir the shadows darker than the night and more restless than the thoughts of men donkin prowled spiteful and alone amongst the shadows thinking that jimmy too long delayed to die that evening land had been reported from aloft and the master while adjusting the tubes of the long glass, had observed with quiet bitterness to Mr. Baker that, after fighting our way inch by inch to the western islands, there was nothing to expect now but a spell of calm. The sky was clear and the barometer high. The light breeze dropped with the sun, and an enormous stillness, forerunner of a night without wind, descended upon the heated waters of the ocean as long as daylight lasted the hands collected on the forecastle head watched on the eastern sky the isle of flores that rose above the level expanse of the sea with irregular and broken outlines like a sombre ruin upon a vast and deserted plain it was the first land seen for nearly four months charley was excited and in the midst of general indulgence took liberties with his betters men strangely elated without knowing why talked in groups and pointed with bared arms for the first time that voyage jimmy sham existence seemed for a moment forgotten in the face of a solid reality we had gotten so far anyhow belfast discoursed quoting imaginary examples of short homeward runs from the islands them smart fruit schooners do it in five days he affirmed What do you want? Only a good little breeze. Archie maintained that seven days was the record passage, and they disputed amicably with insulting words. Knowles declared he could already smell home from there, and with a heavy list on his short leg, laughed fit to split his sides. A group of grizzled sea-dogs looked out for a time in silence and with grim, absorbed faces. One said suddenly, Taint not far to london now my first night ashore blame me if i haven't steak and onions for supper and a pint of bitter said another a barrel ye mean shouted someone ham and eggs three times a day that's the way i live cried an excited voice there was a stir appreciative murmurs eyes began to shine jaws champed short nervous laughs were heard archie smiled with reserve all to himself singleton came up gave a careless glance and went down again without saying a word indifferent like a man who had seen flores an incalculable number of times the night travelling from the east blotted out of the limpid sky the purple stain of the high land dead calm said somebody quietly the murmur of lively talk suddenly wavered died out the clusters broke up men began to drift away one by one descending the ladders slowly and with serious faces as if sobered by that reminder of their dependence upon the invisible and when the big yellow moon ascended gently above the sharp rim of the clear horizon it found the ship wrapped up in a breathless silence a fearless ship that seemed to sleep profoundly dreamlessly on the bosom of the sleeping and terrible sea End of chapter five, part one.